Hello, everybody, and welcome in on back to the Blitz on the Balcony podcast presented by Brews on the Balcony. I am your host, Zach Zook, and today is the final show we're going to have for a little while. We are going on hiatus, or I should say I am going on hiatus for the month of July. Not really a whole lot going on in the month of July, and um, the news has really you know, slowed down in the month of June. So uh, I'm going to take a little break, but uh, we got a, we got a packed show today to kind of finish it out and take us into the break, and then we will be back with the Blitz on the Balcony podcast come training camp time and when things start ramping up, uh, probably August, maybe middle of August is when we'll come back. Obviously, follow us on all our social media channels, and we will uh, provide updates as to when the show will resume. But after today, going to take a little break, enjoy the uh, summer weather, six feet apart, of course. Uh, but, uh, today we're going to talk about the Corona's impact on football season. And obviously we'll know more in the coming weeks over the course of the month of July of what the NFL season, the college football season, assuming they do even happen, what it's going to look like and kind of where I see the, uh, forecast heading in terms of how football is going to be played this year. Uh, the, we got the Jamal Adams news that he requested a trade from the Jets. Kind of a big story this week, really the biggest story in the league. Uh, and then Dak signed his, uh, franchise tag. He has until, uh, July 15th to work out a long-term deal. And then we'll finish it up with Debo Samuel, uh, breaking his foot, broke his foot at, uh, in Nashville, when the at one of those 49ers kind of player-led team practices or functions, and so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, and then to kind of close the podcast, uh, some re- reflective thoughts on where the podcast could be headed in the fall and uh, what 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 direction we'd like to take it moving forward. But let's get right into it. The Corona impact on football has been talked about more and more often as we've gotten closer and closer to football season. Here we are, you know, as I sit here on June 24th uh, when I'm recording this, and we're still very far away from football season. Yet, as we've creeped closer and closer, and the NBA still not back, NHL still not back, MLB just yesterday finally was able to get an agreement to come back and play. All these leagues, although the corona cases have gone down across America, still having a lot of trouble logistically getting back up and running. Uh, You had, you know, Dr. Fauci had the tweet that I don't see how football can happen safely this fall. Everybody's worried about mutation, a second wave. We're, you know, into phase two here in St. Louis right now, but cases are on the rise in Florida and Texas, and we're now getting more mass testing. Especially on the collegiate level now, it's getting kind of scary because we're having players at several of these Division One programs testing positive for COVID. We've had NFLers test positive for COVID. And when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I said that it was going to be more complicated for the NCAA than the NFL to come back. And I think that's still going to be the case. Now, one thing that I think I may have overestimated was how badly the NCAA and these schools are going to try to have football this season. 
I thought that they would err on the side of caution, if anything, because of the amateur athlete's uh, perspective of it, because of the student athlete side of things, and because these these players are viewed as kids, not adults playing a profession like they are in the NFL. It's just viewed much differently, as it probably should be. And so, therefore, I thought the the NCAA and a lot of these schools would be much more cautious in playing football or any sports for that matter than it feels like they are right now. And and everybody, not to say that they're not being cautious, everybody's doing the best they can, but it's become more and more apparent, at least to me, uh, through the grapevine the, the couple weeks, or you read the tea leaves on social media, and these schools want to play. I mean, the SEC in particular is going to play football come hell or high water, it feels like. I mean, if Alabama or Auburn don't play football games this fall, whether it's in front of fans or not, uh, there, there's no... There, it just feels like it would be a very bizarre world where Alabama, Auburn, Mississippi State, like those schools do not play this season. I, I, I don't see a world where that could happen. And... You know, deep down, I know nothing, right? Like, nobody knows anything that's going to happen over the course of the next couple months. Each month feels like a year in itself because of how many twists and turns there are. And 2020 has been a year shot straight out of hell to come consume us all. But college football, it's become more and more apparent to me over the coming weeks just how reliant they are on the revenue streams of the football programs. But even if they play the games, I have a hard time seeing, you know, uh, Alabama filling up its stadium to capacity. Penn State, Michigan, Ohio State, Auburn, Oregon, filling up their stadiums to capacity. I I just don't, that's not going to happen. Because even if they play the games, they're not going to allow the students to to be going wild in, in in, in the section and standing, you know, shoulder to shoulder, that's not going to happen. So because of that, they're going to lose out on the revenue of the stadium sales, which is, I'd imagine, a very large portion of the income that college football brings in. Now, they sell merchandise and the, the athletes don't get a cut of it uh, because of, you know, them being amateurs. Well, I guess, did they change that rule now? I, I, it's tough tough for me to keep up. I think they may have changed that because that was the old, you know, Cam Newton thing where he got in trouble for signing autographs. Or was that Reggie Bush? No, Cam Newton got in trouble for buying his dad a Ford, something like that. Anyways, I digress. The, the, the college revenue streams, I think, r- rely on the stadium income more than the NFL does. And that's something I didn't really think about prior. Because with the NFL, you have these, you know, these TV deals, which the college football teams do too, but they're much larger at the NFL level. The NFL is is an independently run private business, right? So they have all sorts of revenue streams from ad partners, and the NCAA has that too, but I don't think to as high of a degree as football. And the NFL has something that's called revenue sharing. So they their business model 
is just that. It's a model for business where I think it's a little bit more tricky with the NCAA because obviously Alabama brings in a heck of a lot more money than say, oh, I don't know, Ole Miss or Tennessee or Vanderbilt, right? Like their college football programs bring in more money. It's not like Alabama has to then share that with the SEC or the NCAA and give some of that money to Vanderbilt, like what happens in the NFL. I mean, the Raiders get a check cut to them from the NFL every season. They don't make near as much money as the Patriots are, as the Steelers are, as some of these other storied franchises are, the Cowboys. That all gets put in a pot and it's it's all split. I mean, that is the concept of revenue sharing. Well, the NCAA doesn't have that. So these teams then are in these programs, these athletic departments are going to be, you know, self, self, they're going to have to be self-sufficient in how they keep their income. And I don't see how they're going to be able to do that even if the games are played because they're not going to be able to have students and spectators in the stadium. Maybe in some capacity, you could get to like 10, 20% capacity if you only sell X amount of seats and they're so far apart. And that I feel like is reaching. I don't think that even that can happen. But regardless, they're going to have to find a way to lean on other revenue streams. And I, and the more I rack my brain, I think college football is going to take, and colleges in general are going to take a huge hit this fall, whether football is played or not. And so, uh, again, I think it's going to be very logistically difficult for college football, more so than the NFL. I I really don't worry about the NFL. I mean, right now, whether they have to play them in empty stadiums, they're going to get it done. They're going to be fine because business has been booming for them over the course of the last five to ten years. They just got a labor peace agreement done right before COVID hit. Throughout COVID, they have been excellent. They haven't missed a beat. They ran the draft, no problem. The MLB had to cut their draft down from 40 rounds to five. It was the most underreported sports story at the time. From 40 rounds to five. That is significant. The NFL didn't change a thing. They just went virtual. They had the full seven-round draft. It was the highest-rated draft ever. They killed it. Papa Roger was in his recliner reading off the draft names, and everything was fine. It went off without a hitch. They've done virtual OTAs, pretty much gone off without a hitch. We'll talk about a little bit about the Debo Samuel thing later. That had, puts a little hitch in, in the 49ers' plans this fall. But for the most part, the NFL and their teams have figured it out, whereas these other leagues have not been able to. And so I don't really worry about the NFL as much as I worry about college football and the NCAA. They just have a lot more red tape and hurdles to jump through. And I I think that it's going to be a school-by-school basis. Schools that don't bring in a ton of money are not going to want to play. It's not going to be worth it to them. When you talk about the academic schools out in the Pac-12, like Stanford, like UCLA, they, they don't their football program does not bring in as much money as Alabama, as Auburn as Mississippi State, as Florida. Like, those schools in the SEC and in the Big Ten, for the most part, are entirely reliant on the money that's brought in from their football program. And some of them, their basketball. Like, Syracuse, Duke, North Carolina, like, big basketball schools, right? But for the most part, it's football or bust. And if it's taken by a school-by-school basis, like, I can't see, you know, 
teams like Stanford, schools like Stanford, institutions like them wanting to move forward and risk it as much as schools like Ohio State, like Michigan, like Penn State, like Bama, like Auburn. They need the football season to happen because of the money. And I I just think that even if the season does happen, it's going to be really tough for the NCAA. Now, I still have faith. I, I like to have positivity. I like to try to be positive about the situation. I think that a lot can happen between now and then. Testing has gone through the roof in the United States. The The U.S. is testing, you know, thousands of people every day. And I'm sure that's only going to increase and get better as we learn more about the virus and more about how to combat it and how to restart the economy as safely as humanly possible. However, there's still going to be challenges, and I just think the NCAA faces more hurdles than the NFL, and therefore, I think that corona could impact college football a little bit more than the NFL. At the end of the day, gun to my head, I think both sports get played. I think if, if you were to see anything that's a little bizarre or different in terms of like scheduling, maybe the SEC, maybe some of the schools can't play. Maybe you don't get full conference participation across the football programs this year. So there could be some weird things that go on in the NCAA, whereas in the NFL, I'm really not quite as worried about it. I think uh, at, at most you're going to get stadiums with, without fans. I mean, it's going to be weird watching Lambeau Field host, you know, a Packers-Bears game if it's all empty, you know. It's going to be very odd to watch, you know, the Steelers and the Bengals at Heinz Field with nobody in sight. Uh, but aside from that, the TV deals are going to be fine. I think they're going to play the games fine. I think they'll play them on schedule. Uh, but, but college football could struggle a little bit more. So let's move on to some stories around the league. Jamal Adams has very publicly requested a trade from the New York Jets. And similar to the Dalvin Cook saga, similar to you know some other players that have wanted out, I kind of don't really understand what Jamal Adams is thinking here. Well, okay, I understand wanting to get out of New York. Okay, uh, I don't, I don't fault him for requesting the trade at all. Where I kind of fault him is it feels like the reason that he's requested the trade is a financial issue. He's unhappy with his contract. He wants to be paid more. He wants an extension, and. The Jets, obviously, GM Joe Douglas, a little unwilling to do that, and I can see why. He needs to understand, first of all, the position he plays, and it's not as though the guy is Yannick Ngakwe, who was not taken in the first round. Jamal Adams placed safety and was taken sixth overall in the draft. Safeties do not typically go in the top 10. I'm trying to rack my brain to think if we had any taken in the first round this year. Maybe one, maybe one, if you count Isaiah Simmons. But aside from that, no safeties taken in the first round. It's corners, it's edge guys, it's linemen, it's quarterbacks and wide receivers. He was drafted sixth overall as a safety, meaning he was he's on his rookie deal making a shit ton of money. He is not cheap. It's not as though he's a fifth-round pick making 500 k for four years. The Jets have picked up his fifth-year option, and he will be making a shitload of money. I didn't go on Spot Track to look at the details of the contract, but those guys make 
$8 million in salary their first couple years, and it only goes up. Now, I think he's upset because guys like Christian McCaffrey in his draft class have gotten paid. Patrick Mahomes is about to get paid. Well, Jamal Adams, I, I like you. You're a good player. You're not Christian McCaffrey or Patrick Mahomes. And Christian McCaffrey plays a position where it's tough to get paid at right now, too. He's a running back. But he's a historical, game-changing running back that can catch the ball out of the backfield, that provides more value on offense than just running between the tackles. He is the best offensive player on the roster. Now, while Jamal Adams is certainly the most valuable defensive player on the Jets roster, he kind of plays an old style, and a style that I personally love, by the way. I've always been a Jamal Adams guy. He's a very talented player, but his best trait, I mean, go, if you look up the advanced stats, go on PFF, go on any you know metric site, NFL.com, his best attribute is rushing the quarterback as a safety. He is a secondary player whose strength is not to cover. And so like as from a football mindset, like, you know, when I put on my coaching hat, I always try to stay away from those guys a little bit. Now, I love the violence in the game. So guys that play like that, I tend to gravitate towards like Cam Chancellor. God, love Cam Chancellor. Hitner, you know, Dante Whitner, love that guy. Jamal Adams crushes people, love him. But, you know, if you're thinking about it from a GM perspective, we got all the targeting now. You can't really hit people. And Jamal Adams' style is physical and aggressive. It's why I don't really like uh, Jonathan Abram, who the Raiders took in the first round last year, who then got banged up and played like one half of football this year. Now, Jamal Adams is a much, much more talented player than Jonathan Abrams, and he does a lot of things. But he's most valuable in the run game and rushing the passer. And so, like, if I'm GM Joe Douglas, I'm like, well, buddy, you're under contract for three, what, two, three more years? I don't need to pay you now. I'm already paying you a pretty decent amount of money. And you're not, it's not like you're some great cover safety. He's not a cover guy. So as much as I like Jamal Adams as a player, and I think he's, you know, a top five, five, probably top three-ish safety in the league, Behind what? Like Tyran Matthew? I mean, really, that's the only guy I can think of, to be honest with you. Harrison Smith, Vikings. Uh, Eddie Jackson's pretty good. Um, there's, there's some guys in the mix, but he's right there with them, right? But to, to, to ask for a trade out because, oh, well, the Jets won't pay me this money, like, that's a little ridiculous. Now, where I take his side is I don't blame him for wanting to get out of New York. And it, it sounds like he's had a rift with Adam Gase. Adam Gase, you know, can't get along with fucking anybody. Boy, that guy has really, really taken a nosedive in terms of public perception. He went from being, you know, this quarterback whisperer. And it doesn't work out in Chicago. Then he gets the head job in Miami, coaches the Dolphins. They have the one playoff year. I actually kind of, I was like, hey, this guy might know what he's doing. Miami Dolphins haven't had a ton of success. He goes there and makes the playoffs with them. Then he gets the head coach coaching job with the Jets. I kind of like the hire. You know, you got Sam Darnold. You need an offensive guy that has coached a variety of quarterbacks, has a lot of experience in the league, has had some success at the head coaching level. But, man, it, the guy just seems, you know, like socially, like he, it, it just doesn't work for whatever reason. And, and, and that happens to people. It doesn't mean he's a bad coach, but... 
You know, it, it feels like it's time after time after time. Like people can't get along with Adam Gase. People can't get along with Adam Gase. He's lost the locker room. So in that respect and in that regard, I don't blame Jamal Adams for wanting to get out of New York. But then it's it's so hilarious. Like they, oh, the teams Jamal Adams wants to go to. The Chiefs, the Patriots, the Cowboys, and the Rams. Like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> like, yeah, I'd like to go play for one of those franchises too. But here's the thing. When you sign a contract, and this is one thing I don't understand about today's athlete. You can request the trade, but the the key word in that phrase is request. GM Joe Douglas, like, he does not have to grant it. And you don't do yourself any favors when you make it public. Like Yannick Ngakwe, who went all public and on this tirade in the media and on social, it, it didn't help his case because it gives the team that you want to be traded from It puts them at a disadvantage. They don't have any trade leverage. Well, the GM, who you're already feuding with, is not going to give you up for pennies on the dollar and let you screw him. Joe Douglas is not going to get bent over for a fourth-round pick for Jamal Adams, who's one of the best safeties in the league when he's got him under contract for two or three years. Not going to happen. So when you go public... And you, you know, I want to be traded to this organization and I'm pissed that they won't extend me. And this organization is a clown show. Trade me. Get me the hell out of here. That's not how it works. You're not a free agent. I, it's more so in the NBA, but it just blows my guy, my mind how these guys like Jamal Adams like tweeted at Marcus May the other day. Yeah, like you just just keep doing you, bro. Like you're going to do great this fall. Like, did you forget you're still on the New York Jets? And probably will be for a little bit of time unless the Jets can get fair value for you, which I can't imagine they're going to have any offers come on the table that blow them away. Because if you're the opposing team or if you're looking to acquire, why the hell am I going to pay full price? The guy doesn't even want to be there. You have no leverage again. So when you publicly lash out like this, I just I just don't understand it. I just don't understand the business move on Jamal Adams' side. Like, why don't you work it out quietly with the front office and say, hey, I'm going to be, you know, in good faith. I'm not going to make this a thing, but you got to deal me or I'm not going to play this fall. I, I think if you keep it in house like that, you'll have a lot better results. It just like you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Right. And so when it comes to these scenarios, I just. I don't understand it. And I know it feels like two or three weeks in a row now we've had, you know, contract disputes where it feels like I've come on anti-player. Like, uh, you know, I wasn't on Clowney's side. I don't get the Dak thing. I totally understand Jamal Adams wanting to be traded from the Jets. I wouldn't want to play for the Jets either. I think it's a sinking ship. If you look around the division, they're not going to be successful for quite some time. It doesn't feel like the Bills aren't going anywhere. As long as Belichick is in New England, the Patriots are going to be good. And now the Dolphins drafted Tua, who I really like, and it seems like Brian Flores is legit. If they start building something, I mean, the Jets, it feels like, are going to be at the cellar for you know quite some time. And you still have old guys on the roster that aren't GM Joe Douglas's guys. You still have a coach there that I don't think Joe Douglas hired. So it feels like there's going to be a period of transition coming up there anyways. So if you're Jamal Adams, you have such a short window of money-making opportunity and and power and, and leverage as a player, right? The career lasts so short. I don't blame you for wanting to get out. So I want to be clear on that. 
Do not fault him whatsoever for wanting to get traded. Where I fault him is for wanting a mega deal when you already are a sixth overall pick. You're already making pretty good money, especially for a safety. A safety getting drafted as high as you making as much as he has on his rookie contract is unheard of. So the financial aspect and the public aspect, that's where I, that's where I just, I disagree. I would have done different. So let's move on. Uh, let's talk about the Dak Prescott deal. Dak Prescott signs his franchise tender and has till 7:15 to work out a long-term deal. I don't think the Cowboys are going to work out a long-term deal. They're going to play it out. They would have offered him months and months ago before all this happened if they were interested in working out a long-term deal that they thought could get done. Now, they've put offers on the table, and Dak, to this point, has been unwilling to sign. Feels like the two sides are pretty far apart on numbers. Dak thinks he's, you know, Tom Brady, and the Cowboys think he's more, you know, like Kirk Cousins. Reality is, he's probably in the middle. Uh, you know, he's not as bad probably as the Cowboys think, and he's definitely not as good as he is he and his agent think. So, uh, if I'm the Cowboys, I've hired a new coach in Mike McCarthy who probably hasn't really had much interaction with him. Now, I'm sure they've had a little bit, but because of COVID and virtual OTAs, Mike McCarthy probably hasn't gotten to know Dak Prescott all that well. And so, Mike McCarthy also did not draft him. That was, you know, Jason Garrett was around when Dak Prescott was picked up from Mississippi State. So Mike McCarthy has zero attachment to Dak Prescott to be the starting quarterback. They've also signed a veteran in Andy Dalton. So I think that they're going to play it out. And I think Dak Prescott, you know, I, I think did did a good thing by signing this tender. Uh, holding out in these uncertain times when you play the position of quarterback I don't think would have boded well for his future because that deal, especially like you don't sign the deal. If you don't get the long-term deal worked out by 7-15, like you can't do anything anyway. So after 7-15, your holdout is irrelevant because even if the team wanted to give you $100 million, they couldn't do so, you know? So I I, I think it's a smart move by Dak to just Sign, sign the franchise tag. Okay, I'm going to play for $31 million this year. Now we can maybe negotiate in good faith. If, if a deal doesn't get worked out, whatever. I'm going to lead this team to the playoffs, to the postseason again. And if you're not going to pay me what I think I'm worth, then fuck you and I'll go get paid by somebody else. I think that's the way to go about it. I mean, he's betting on himself in a sense, but like... Even if the Cowboys go, you know, nine and seven, miss the playoffs, or end up as a wild card, as long as he performs reasonably well, he has enough of a background now and has uh, produced enough to where he's absolutely going to get big money. He's done much more than Kirk Cousins did in his Washington career, and Minnesota, the Minnesota Vikings couldn't wait to hand him the bag. Remember, it was the Vikings, the Jets, and the Niners all lined up for him. <laughs> you know, so. Uh, I think it's smart of him to kind of be a leader and sign the franchise tag to help get ready for the season uh, because I think you put yourself behind the eight ball. Like, let's say you hold out. You don't get to know uh, C.D. Lamb, your new first-round draft pick. You don't get to know, you know, the new wrinkles that Mike McCarthy's going to be putting into the offense. Clearly, it's going to be a different offense, at least a little bit. You're a brand-new head coach, brand-new defensive coordinator. I mean, it's it's a brand new staff. You have new players. And during coronavirus, you're limited anyways. You're going to add to that with a holdout. I think that if he then holds out, like, what's he going to hold out the entire season? Well, they have Andy Dalton. 
might not be the best move in the world to do so. Because what if they have success under Andy Dalton? Then I think you, your 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 ability to negotiate a lucrative long-term deal more than Kirk Cousins goes down substantially. Like if he holds out, big voice crack there, if he were to hold out the whole season and Andy Dalton led the Cowboys to the playoffs, I don't think Dak Prescott gets more money than Kirk Cousins. Simply if he plays and they go 8-8 eight and eight and don't make make the playoffs just if he plays and produces a similar stat line that he's had throughout his career I think he gets he gets more than Kirk right but you know he does himself no favors by sitting out so I think that this was a a smart business move by Dak to sign the franchise tag I, I if I were the Cowboys why rush you got him signed now through 2020 Let's deal with that another day. We'll play the season. Let's see how it goes. He's our quarterback for this year. And ultimately, if you want him to be your quarterback in 2021, you'll you'll find a way to keep him. I mean, he plays the most important position in football. You have the ability of the franchise tag. This isn't the NBA where the players control their own destiny necessarily. This is much more of a team-oriented league Whereas the NBA is really a players, it's a players league. So ultimately, if the Cowboys want Dak Prescott wearing the star next year, he'll be wearing the star next year. So I would play it out if I'm the Cowboys. If I'm Dak, I'm gearing up for this season, trying to, you know, put on as good of an audition as possible for the Cowboys to give me a long-term deal and some stability. And if not them, then I'm a walking and I'm going to get huge money to go play elsewhere. Remember, sixth ranked offense last year. They're one of the best offenses in the NFL statistically uh, throughout a big portion of the season. I remember at the time they played the Bears, and I don't know why I specifically remember the stat, they had the best rushing offense and the best passing offense. At the at the date they played the Bears, I think it was Thursday night football. And I think they lost that game. Yeah, they did. They got stopped. I want to say 21-0. But uh they had the f- the best rushing and passing attack in football at that time. So uh, Dak Prescott, who has won a playoff game and has had a lot of success in Dallas, simply just by playing this year, I think uh, puts him in a very good position to make some big long-term money. And, and he picks up $31 million this year. I feel like that gets lost in translation so often. Like we're forgetting that the franchise tag is an average of the top five salaries at the position in the league. So we're talking Goff, we're talking Wentz, we're talking Rodgers, you know, Brady Breeze, like those, he's making that money. Now I think actually Brady Breeze are making a lot less money now, but he is making top dollar at the position right now to play in 2020. It's not like the guy's taking a hometown discount, you know? It's not like signing the franchise tender, he's playing for pennies. He's playing for a very, very high number. I mean, let's not let's quit pretending that he's getting screwed here. That's a, again, if you hold out in in 2020, do you think that you can make that money up with your contract next year? I mean, I think the majority of the time, regardless of the position you play, the answer is going to be no. And that's where Le'Veon Bell erred in his decision making with the Steelers. He lost a year of money making potential by sitting out. He was the best running back in the league, and he's he's never going to get that money back. Because regardless, and he did get paid very well by the Jets, but the money he made with the Jets, it it wasn't enough to nearly make up what he was going to get 
had he played under the franchise tag for the Steelers, now if he tears his knee, he never gets the deal with the Jets. That was the whole reason he was adamant about sitting out in the first place. However, I mean, it's, it's, that's football, kind of. I mean, you could, you could tear your knee walking down the stairs tomorrow. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. And so by, like, what's more likely to happen? You know, you, you tear up your knee or you get a career-ending injury or, you know, you play and you can still play next year. You rake up the money for that current season and then you get the money the next season. You know, I feel like the latter is more likely to happen than you get some, you know, God forbid, Ryan Shazier-type injury and you can't play anymore. Uh, last thing I want to talk about, let's talk about the Debo, Debo Samuel injury because this is just a classic, like, worst nightmare scenario for the 49ers. They're, you know, trying to trying to do the right thing, can't, can't you know, do OTAs, trying to get ahead, work hard. You know, we were defeated in the Super Bowl last year. Watching the Four Falls of Buffalo, that documentary, that 30 for 30, if you haven't seen it, I'd highly recommend it. They always talked about how bitter of a taste it left in their mouth every time they lost and how desperate they were to get back to that game. That's how it is for every Super Bowl loser, regardless of if they make it back there. I mean, they're ready to get to work tomorrow. You hear that story all the time, every time the losing team, I mean, they, they, the taste is so nasty and so bitter that they, I have to get back to that. I have to climb the mountain again, and I have to win it this time. That's probably how the 49ers feel. And so with COVID hitting, you know, there's not a lot you can do. You're, you know, socially shamed if you do, you know, break rules. So they're trying to, to you know, be self-starters. They're trying to work hard. They're trying to prepare. And so I kind of gave them, you know, a thumbs up. Like 49ers are running a full-scale, you know, player-led practice down in Nashville. Good for them. Getting ready for the 2020 season. You know, like at a certain point, as as risky as this thing is, and as dangerous as it is, I'm, I don't want to downplay the severity of it at all. It, it's terrible. And I hope nobody you know has it or ever does get it. But on a certain level, at a certain time, you have to find out how how best to deal with it, find out how to combat it, and then find out how to continue to live your life with this variable now in play. You can't just stop living your life, right? And, and that's kind of more the outlook I've progressed to over the last maybe month or two. And I think that's where we as a society are headed. And the 49ers are thinking, we lot, we, we, we want to get back to a Super Bowl. This is our life. This is our life and our li- livelihood. You know, it's not just in everybody that doesn't play football. Obviously, it's just a game. Well, it's not just a game. To them, they're making millions of dollars. It's, it, it ceases to become just a game when you make millions and millions and millions of dollars to play it, right? It, it's a career. And so they're going back to work just like everybody else is. And so for them to now have a, a Debo Samuel get this, this broken foot at a player-led practice in Nashville, Tennessee, thousands of miles away from Santa Clara, California, I mean, Kyle Shanahan has just got to be going, what the fuck is going on? You just lost your best wide receiver after losing one in free agency. They lost Emmanuel Sanders to the Saints in free agency after trading to acquire him. You just nailed the Debo Samuel pick out of South Carolina in the second round. He was an electrifying rookie. Now, 
on top of Debo, you add Brandon Ayuk into the mix. Now you have two wide receivers with similar skill sets that you can run on those jet sweeps, throw screens to, throw slants to, using the quick game and using Kyle Shanahan's offense, and one of them just broke his foot. The best one just broke his foot. So Brandon Ayuk now is the number one wide receiver as of today, June 24th in San Francisco. Huge problem. Now it's a broken foot, right? Not all that serious. He has a Jones fracture though. And those foot injuries are very, very tricky. They're very tricky. You can, you can get the Liz Frank, which is very bad. And I believe that one has a high rate of re-injury. Like you can re-injure, you can have that same Liz Frank then when you try to come back from it. And I talked to somebody that I know, just a regular average Joe human, right? Like not a world-class athlete like Debo Samuel is. Just a regular average Jones human that had had the Jones fracture. And he basically said that, you know, after the surgery or whatever, you're in a cast boot for a month and then you started rehabbing after that. So that's that's a pretty significant injury. I mean, he's not going to be able to really do much on it until at least, you know, mid-August, September. He's certainly, I think, going to miss some time. Now, maybe... Maybe by some miracle he makes it back because I think NFL season's around like September like 10th. Uh, college football typically comes back like first couple days of September, even late August, and then football's the week. NFL's the week after, so he's gonna be cutting it close though to to missing time. And if you're Kyle Shanahan, you just gotta be thinking, what in the world is happening? We we cannot catch a break and. For Debo, you know, luckily he's younger. I mean, at the at the beginning of his career, doesn't have a ton of mileage on his legs, hopefully. And, you know, being in his early 20s, he's going to be able to recover from this a lot easier than, say, Greg Olson was able to recover from his foot a couple years back. You know, as a guy in his 30s, grizzled vet with 10-plus years in the league. It's a little bit different story, right? Like, Big Ben recovering from this elbow thing is going to be a lot, hell of a lot different than Debo Samuel trying to recover from his foot. But it is just such a tricky thing. Like I remember when I, I didn't break my foot, but I sprained the uh, ligament that runs you know vertically on the bottom of your foot. And it was, I tried playing on it for like two to three weeks before I had to sit down. And it was the most frustrating thing in the world because you could run in a straight line at full sprint, didn't hurt. Second I tried to cut on it, it was just excruciating pain. Could not do it. Any to any turn of direction had to be basically done, you know, like I was driving a Hummer. So with these foot injuries, the dexterity that, you know, the foot allows you, you to have, you know, as a human, it goes so unnoticed until you have a problem down there. And all of a sudden it severely impacts your athleticism, which is kind of Debo's game. So he's going to have to make sure this thing's 100% before he's able to play. So those are kind of my thoughts. That's the last show of this year. Uh, closing thoughts before we sign off for, you know, a month plus. If you've made it this far, I haven't looked at the numbers, you know, I, I don't think since the Super Bowl happened. I could be talking to a brick wall. I have no idea. But I, I can't imagine the numbers are that high for people listening to football here in, you know, late June, you know, during COVID. But if you made it this far, I really appreciate, you know, the, the listens and the support. As we move forward into the fall, where I'd like to head with this is to, to I, I would really like to get maybe somebody else to co-host the show with me. So that could be coming uh, 
down the pipeline here in the future. I really like the style of the show that uh, we've set up here on Blitz, uh, what was previously the midweek show. I think we get a lot of great storylines, especially during the season and then heading into the draft. So I'd like to keep that format moving forward. Maybe like a 10, 10 months out of the year podcast will take you know July off, maybe part of August. But uh, I, I really liked keeping it running up and through the draft uh, this past year, and I'd like to do that again. I'm really excited about uh, where I think Blitz could head here in you know, its second season. We had the live show last year, which was a big leap for us. Uh, props to TJ and Nick for putting that together. It'll be a little different with Nick and Reno, but I'd imagine he'll still try and join us as much as he can for, you know, the the show this fall. And, and we will still try and have the Sunday live show, whether it's at uh, a restaurant, uh, whether it is, you know, at the studio, at, at TJ's house. We're going to have the live show. We're going to have the midweek show. If you have any input and to where you'd like to see the show go, if you'd like to see, you know, new, you know, fun segments, if you'd like to see us get into, you know, different topics, attack things and maybe a different uh, way stylistically, uh, or if you just have positive feedback, we'd love to love to hear it. Leave a review on the Brews on the Balcony podcast. I know that helps those guys out a ton. You can reach out to us on our social media, but uh, really just to, excited to get back to it. Hopefully there's football. Uh, I've continued to grow, you know, in my PFF career and in my professional career. And as I get more integrated, you know, from that college mindset to actually being a full-fledged adult, it's been really fun to see the progression of the podcast from when, you know, TJ and I first started doing the football show, uh, at his old apartment, you know, to now then the studio. And now we have the live show this past fall at Cafe T. It's, it's just been a lot of fun. And, uh, so ho- hopefully we'll keep on, uh, chugging along in the fall, but, uh, thank you so much for making us a part of your week as always. And we'll see you in August.